How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 84 of X-Laps, where, well, the grift rolls on here. We're going to continue our way through the second half of Empire colon X-Men, and this is Empire colon X-Men number three. It's had an October 2020 cover date. The story's called Staff Infection. And once again, we get a whole new slew of writers. This is Vita Ayala or Vita Ayala, I'm not sure which, uh, Zeb Wells and Ed Brisson. Art, Andrea Bricardo. Colors, Nolan Wooded. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. The head of X is Hickman. Edits, Beast, Sowetsabolski. Cover price, five friggin' dollars. And this went on sale August 12th of 2020. Now we kick things off with our roll call. Today we're going to be focusing on Magic, Penance, Angel, Multiple Man, Black Tom Cassidy, The Stepford Cuckoos, Beast, Nightcrawler, Opal, Edith, Augusta, Lily, and Explody Boy. Then we get two pages of people taking credit for this. Okay, so into comics, and we're, of course, still on Genosha. And our zombies are still stirring. Now, they won't shut up about brains. Real original, right? Uh, now, it's not 100% clear to me here, but I think we've even got some veg-type zombies in the mix now. Whatever the case, they're all headed to that big bulb. You know, that big membrane that uh, even the Soul Sword couldn't cut through last issue. Uh, it looks as though the veg types are actually being granted access through, though, I think. Anyway, back to our heroes. Now, the mutant psychics, who now include Danny Moonstar, Karma, and some blonde character, who I think is supposed to be Maxime or Manon, but, I mean, really, they just look like Kamandi here? I don't know. They're watching a fleet of Jamie Madroxes fighting off the meat-type zombie horde. Now, Magic, she warps she and Opal away, and we'll catch up with them in just a little bit. Quentin Quire then takes point, telling the mutant psychics it's time to mount up, to which they somehow wrap themselves in a tree-like armor coating and leap into action. And this is the first of a few unwarranted and fillery full-page spreads. I mean, as if this story didn't already feel stretched out to the point where it would need, like, collagen injections before, right? Anyway, Magic and Opal. They zip over to Beast's lab on Krakoa, and this is a decent little scene. Now, they're here in hopes that they can concoct some of that black oak in order to destroy the bulb. And I'm going to come clean here. I thought that's what they did last issue, but I suppose I was mistaken. I guess it was just Teeny Tiny Tom's attempt to communicate with Krakoa that caused the bulb to get all wonky and spit Jamie Madrox out. Fair enough. My bad. So I do want to give this issue some credit here, because I said I like this scene, because... This might actually be the best portrayal of Beast that we've seen since Hoxpox, and even before that. He's not brooding, he's not snarky, he's not borderline evil. 
He's not philosophizing with semester one freshman ethics sort of stuff. He's doing beast things, just doing beast things, and it's pretty funny. Uh, we jump back to Genosha, where Madrox has somehow managed to rescue Monet, while uh, down below in the fracas, the zombies are overwhelming a gaggle of Jamie dupes. Jamie Prime, and I think it's Horticulture Lily, they're then approached by Explody Boy, who makes them an offer that, well, they don't even really get the opportunity to think long enough about in order to refuse. Now, EB says he'll help out so long as he can keep all the resulting meat to eat. Jamie's just kind of dumbfounded, and then EB goes kaboom. Back to Krakoa, Beast and Opal are listening to some classical music and working on their Black Oak gimmick, and it doesn't take them all that long to get to get to the bottom of it. And I'm telling you, this is some of the best Beast we've seen in years. It's sad that it's like just a short side visit here, as this is the last we'll see of them. Anyway, they have their Black Oak serum, and they load up a bunch of super soakers with it. They then give them to Black Tom, who, as always, is Black Tomming. He claims that his teeny tiny Tom avatar has been busted, and so he's out of tricks. Thankfully, we do have another teleporter here, and his name is Nightcrawler. Kurt grabs the Super Soakers and bamfs all the way to Genosha in another unwarranted full-page spread. So, okay, we're back on Genosha, and it's the zombie versus mutant battle. It continues to rage on. Uh, one of the cuckoos is very nearly overwhelmed by, like, a whole bunch of undeads. But Magic is able to step in before anything actually happens. And, you know, it's like, yeah, they're really going to actually kill somebody in this pointless cash-in? I never see any editorial footnotes directing us to read this. Um, I mean, Empire X-Men isn't even worth resorting to the resurrection protocols. Uh, Magic actually says that using the protocols is expensive. So, uh... I think uh, they must blow their monthly budget every time an issue of X-Force drops, because uh, bodies hit the floor in that book. Anywho, the Cuckoo suggests, hey, how about we stop fighting wave after wave after wave of these things and maybe try to find out where they're coming from? Magic is all, duh, why didn't I think of that? To which, yeah, why didn't you think of that? You're the Krakoan war captain. Shouldn't you have had that in your in the back of your head somewhere? Whatever the case. Back to Nightcrawler, who's squirting the big bulb with his super soakers, and it actually begins to work. It's wearing holes in the formerly unbreakable membrane. Unfortunately, the meat-type zombies are using these holes to enter because they uh, appear to sense fresh meat inside. Back to Magic and the Cuckoo, they're porting around looking for the zombie origin point, and after a dozen or so ports, they happen across a very odd rod, of which Magic is overwhelmed with his beauty. It gives the cuckoo a nosebleed, but not in the anime way. Now, Magic grabs the staff and... winds up transformed into some sort of demon? Uh, okay. Uh, the cuckoo sends out a psychic SOS to inform the rest that, uh, well, they got problems. Back to Madrox. He, Monet, Lily, and Sophia Petrillo, or is that Phil Rizzuto? I don't know. They regain their bearings following Explodey Boy's explosion. And as the dust settles, Jamie sees a bunch of meat-type zombies chowing down on himself, like his dupes. This scene is being played for laughs, and I think it sucks. I don't care for it one bit. I mean, I come from a time where if Jamie lost a single dupe, it affected him deeply. And here, dozens are just being eaten by zombies, and I think we're supposed to find it funny. Come on, folks, you're better than this. This is, this is some low-hanging crap here. This is garbage. Now what's more, in order to clear a path for their escape, Jamie starts just chucking random dupe body parts to distract the zombies. 
this isn't cool. I mean, is this the sort of garbage that they put in those Marvel Zombies books? Because get that crap out of here. Keep it over in those low-effort books and maybe try a little harder here. Now let's work our way toward the ending here. Angel. Remember him? Okay, well, he starts to come out of his hormonal days and uh, realizes that the women that he was just fawning over are, well, ancient. Magic as a demon has some very, very Hickman-esque dialogue, talking about chaos godheads and whatnot. Uh, she then proclaims herself to be the zombie queen of New Genosha. Then, Warren and Jamie start power puking. Not just because they're in this horrible story, but as a side effect of the pheromone wearing off. They all then head inside the big bulb. Here, they find a bunch of meat and veg-type zombies dining on a giant brain. We learn that this is a kotati knot, comprised of... I don't know, a bunch of Katati stuff. One Katati head tells our heroes that the Broadleaf Lord is infected, whatever the hell that means. Just then, the brain bursts, and from it emerges a giant plant zombie big-brained thing that says, Glore, Glore, Glore. And we're out of here. Um, next episode, we wrap this up. Uh, unfortunately, over the course of the next little while, we will be revisiting Empire at least twice in the pages of X-Men Volume 5, but... We'll worry about that when we get there. Let's talk about this. And let's start with the good. Let's start with the good, because there was good here. I thought this was a great portrayal of Beast. <laughs> Unfortunately, that only filled two pages of this issue. Uh, the rest of the issue? Well, it, it sure happened to us, didn't it? Um, you know, it might be damning with faint praise to say that this could have been good. But it could have. It could have been a decent story. If, back in issue one, the mutant zombies managed to make their way through the gateway to Krakoa, I feel like that could have been a lot more fun. Relatively speaking, anyway. I think that would have made it feel like far less of a cash-in, nothing-happening, a completionist-exploiting miniseries. Again, relatively speaking, of course. And who knows? Maybe that was the original plan and the COVID hiatus caused them to shift gears? Probably not. Um, I'm looking at the cover of this issue, right? And of course, covers are fairly meaningless, considering that even the most random of issues comes with a dozen or so variants. Um, I'm looking at it here, and it looks like whoever drew it didn't actually know much about what was going to actually be going on in it. Um, we had a similar issue during X-Men Plus Fantastic Four... Not that that's an excuse. I mean, I don't need to remind any of you that we've got a whole fleet of editors who are supposed to be editing and helping to guide these things, right? But if we stop and we look at the cover, the most prominent character on it is Cyclops. How do you like them Cyclops scenes? What's more, he's flanked by Colossus, Polaris, and Magneto. Those characters have pretty good scenes in here, right? No, we didn't see any of them. What we also didn't see was the Shadow King, who I made perhaps too big a deal out of last episode. Maybe they realized that he you know, just shouldn't be jammed in the background of a cluttered panel? Who knows? Um, while I'm griping, let's go to my biggest gripe. And no, I'm not talking about the low-effort zombie brain stuff. But I'm really annoyed at seeing Jamie Madrox's dupes being eaten by those low-effort zombies. And the whole scene being treated as a funny ha-ha. I remember stories and scenes in the old, you know, the first run of Peter David X-Factor back in the long ago where when Jamie was unable to reabsorb a dead or a dying dupe, that just got into his head to, so, to the point where he was like a basket case. Which, I mean, stands to reason, doesn't it? Here, though, it's just like, well, that sucks, zombies are eating me. 
it, it's really, really so dumb. And I'd like to think that our Hawks, Pox, Doc, Sox brain trusts are a little bit better than this. So please prove me right, because uh, this ain't good. Uh, but I, I'll tell you what, the beast scene was pretty damn good. Give me more of that beast, please. Whoever was responsible for writing those two pages, I want you, I want you, you know, ferrying beast back to uh, prominence and decency. Um, decompression. Let's talk about that. The uh, seams of decompression are really showing here. Uh, panels were sparse, as in there weren't very many for, per page. And then we'd get these unnecessary full-page spreads that really were not warranted. You probably don't need me to tell you that uh, it feels like they padded this out just a little bit to get the four issues. It's just unfortunate that they only had enough story for, like, a regular-sized one-shot that they'd still charge $5 for. Um, I don't think I could recommend this any less, though. Though, I am still open to the possibility that I am completely wrong and that our fourth issue will make me see the error of my ways. Oh, the things we tell ourselves, right? But uh, that is all I have to say about Empire colon X-Men number three. Let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien. He's talking about New Mutants number 11. He says, I feel like the three-part Carnelia story would have worked better as a two-parter, followed by a so-called Lobdell quiet issue. It seems odd pacing choice to drag an extra cliffhanger out of the story when it could be so quickly resolved. And yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, this felt totally tacked on. Um, there was really no reason as to why this needed to be padded, just so the main conflict could be wrapped up in the opening three pages of issue 11 here. Um, and I agree. A Lobdell Quiet issue would have worked really well here. I, I feel like it would give the kids an opportunity to decompress a little bit, because whether the arcs have been exciting or not, we can't deny the fact that there have been arcs here. You know, we had the space arc, we had the farm arc, we had the Nova Roma bit, and now we have the Carnelia bit. That's a lot of stuff going down. And it would be nice to let the kids decompress while still dealing with all the fallout. You know, I mentioned not wanting to see Armor cope with, you know, seeing her family in the ink balloon, but that would have fit in a quiet issue, just a breather issue, just giving us a little chance to catch our breaths before we move into the next phase of things. Damien continues. Having said that, I love this issue because most of the focus was on quiet character moments. Obviously, I still hate how Boom Boom is portrayed, but all the other characters felt right. Danny's moral certainty is a large part of the narrative backdrop to the Claremont run on New Mutants, and I hope her being against mind manipulation leads to her rebelling against Xavier. And I hope so too. I really hope we start seeing little bits of doubt being sprinkled throughout the books. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it, but I'd like to see that sort of bubble to the forefront a little bit. And I mean, you guys know me. As much as I hate the contrived hero versus hero story, and I feel like they are beyond played out at this point, I feel like if they're done right, this could actually be one worth reading. I mean, at this point, it kind of writes itself, doesn't it? I mean, we've been doing our uh, our own headcanon here since, I mean, since the start, uh, and definitely since the Crucible. So it's a. Uh, I feel like this one would write itself. I feel like maybe they're going to be saving that for the third and final act of Hox, Pox, Dox, Sox, Tox. Is the post-X of Ten's era being called Twilight of X? I, I could have sworn I read that somewhere. Maybe Marvel previews, or maybe it's Dusk of X. I don't know. I, I know it's something of X, but I couldn't tell you exactly what. Uh, Damien continues. 
I continue to like the idea of Glob Herman as the homemaker of the Sexton. He's one of those characters who I've really warmed to over the years, but he isn't very good as a superhero, so it's nice to see a role that keeps him in the book. And that's true. Uh, I mean, there really isn't a whole lot that a walking sack of whatever Glob's comprised of, uh, you know, on the battlefield, right? I want to say that he served a similar role to this in what little uh, I read of Age of X-Men. I know he very, at the very least had a chicken coop there. So I think he, uh, I, I don't remember much of his backstory. Is he, you know, a farm boy? Maybe. But uh, I know he had uh, a chicken coop there. He's got a chicken coop here. So I think that's pretty neat as well. Damien wraps up with, You seem really keen on seeing a resolution to the Docs plot. And Docs is in the mutant-hating website magazine thing. I'm quite fearful about it, as I think it's a potential minefield. We've seen a tendency toward the lowest common denominator with villains, and I imagine some very unsubtle depiction of a reactionary internet troll. <sighs> you know what? I didn't even think of that. <laughs> you very well might be, and probably are right. Uh, this might be some wildly unsubtle stuff heading our way. Um... I really don't have a lot of faith in Marvel's portrayal of undesirables these days. I mean, they kind of wear their biases on their sleeve. So yes, this might wind up being a toughie. I suppose it's a good thing that it looks like it'll be a one-and-done, because right after that issue, we jump into X attends. Um, we do have some time before we get to that episode, uh, because I actually just updated the next couple dozen um, episode art things, you know, like what I put up when... What I put up is the album art for each episode. And uh, just to get us up to, like, episode 100. And the next issue of New Mutants, New Mutants 12, is going to actually be episode 99. So we have a little while before we find out just how subtle or unsubtle the Doc's plot might be. So thank you so much for writing in your thoughts on New Mutants number 11, Damien. Thank you. Thank you. Next, Andrew Franklin is talking about Empire and Hellions number 2. He says... I don't like modern Marvel comics. Hell, I don't like most modern comics. I don't care about the wider Marvel universe, so to me, Empire is an inconsequential thing that we'll have to grit our teeth and endure. I hope that the part of the crossover you're detailing becomes good, but after the first issue, I'm not holding my breath. I really hope that the other space crossover Marvel is doing about the symbiote space god, <laughs> insert loud disdainful groan here, doesn't have any X-Book crossover. I am crossover-averse, so even X of Tens is something I'm not really looking forward to. If a part 4 of 6 reads poorly as a single issue, what's a part 13 of 22 gonna read like? I'm keeping an open mind about it, though, because I know a character. I know two characters I like show up, and some listeners here have said good things about it. Now, from what I can tell, our symbiote space god story, um, there will be some King in Black tie-ins to our X-Men books. So far, I have seen that the X-Men are actually on the cover of King in Black number 4. One of the probably 7 trillion covers, so it might not mean anything. Uh, there are a couple of issues of the upcoming S.W.O.R.D. series that are King in Black branded. And Marauders, I think it's a one-shot or a mini-series tied in with King in Black. Um, I can't say that I'm looking forward to any of that. <laughs> Especially in light of what we've gotten with this Empire cash-in, right? It's just another way to pull another another $5 bill out of our pockets, right? But uh, we'll see. We'll see when we get there. I mean, at this point, it's going to be a long time till we get there. So we'll worry about that as we get closer. And as for X of Tens, 
Can't lie. I'm also a bit nervous about how I'm going to receive it. Uh, Not that I can't deal with some duller chapters of a mass crossover event. I mean, this ain't my first rodeo, but as you said, 22 parts is a lot to devote to a single story, isn't it? I mean, at this point, if we include all the Path 2s and the Prelude 2 X of 10s bunch, we're going to be talking about that story for like a month and a half on this show. That's a long time, and uh, (laughs) if... I wind up not liking the story, that's going to be a very, very tough month worth of episodes uh, because I am too obsessed and or stupid to just pull the plug. So we'll we'll power through and probably do a grand disservice to a story that many, many people enjoy or seem to enjoy. But we'll worry about that when we get there. Andrew continues, I would be interested to know how many listeners read more Marvel titles than just the X-Men and if they're reading the whole Marvel Empire experience, how they're enjoying it. That's an excellent question. So if anyone out there would like to share their non-X Marvel pull list and, and, you know, let us know, please please do. Because uh, I still do have questions. Like, if you're reading everything, uh, was this Empire X-Men miniseries worth it? Did it help add any flavor to the experience? Did it do anything for you? I'd like to know. And I guess as we get closer to, you know, uh, King in Black... We'll probably be asking some of those same questions then as well. Andrew continues, On a more positive note, I enjoyed Hellions number 2, maybe more than the first issue, if only because it was more than just getting the team together. I really like that Grey Crow kept his promise to Empath and killed him right away. Really tells the audience a lot about his character. I also like how Havoc reacted, telling Psylocke that he's probably not the right fit for a team where the members are just executing each other like it's no big deal. Which probably means before this arc is done, Alex will do something to show us he does belong here. I like the whole short conversation between Alex and Psylocke, where he tells her that he's fine, and she tells him that she's a psychic and knows that he's not. It feels like a very Alex thing to do, putting up a front like that, even as the reader sees a little glimpse that he's seeing an image of himself as the Goblin Prince and quietly freaking out. Alex has always wanted to be normal and fit in while constantly aware of the huge shadow his brother casts. As a fan of the character, I thought he was being handled well. More on that in a moment, though. And I agree. I agree. Havoc is being handled well here. Um, I still think I might have a problem with him being stuck on this team simply because... And I talked about this during our Hellions number 1 discussion, but... The Quiet Council really should have given him the benefit of the doubt, unless, of course, there is some sort of ulterior motive to having him on this team. You know, is he there to watch them? Is he a mole for Xavier? Is he in cahoots with the Quiet Council in some sort of way? I don't know. I really don't know. And uh, I think that is my main sticking point with Havoc being on the team, despite the fact that I'm a big fan of the character and I always like uh, seeing him try to deal with um, wanting to be you know, mundane. Wanting to be mundane, but knowing that he's not. Uh, We've seen him leave the team time and again to try to live a normal life, sometimes with Polaris, sometimes not. So it's, uh, it is cool seeing that dissonance continue to play out here. Andrew continues, the rest of the issue I enjoyed. I thought the info page on Sinister's Marauders was good. So far, Hellions is using that gimmick well. The art as a whole was good, and the zombie Marauders were appropriately creepy. The fight scene that takes up the last half of the issue is clear and easy to follow, and the coloring is good too, especially when Havoc uses his powers. It's nice bright blue-white. So while I, so kind of a short read, like most modern comics, I enjoyed this more than I thought I would. I'm curious to see where this story goes, with some trepidation. 
I too thought the uh, info page was pretty good here on the Marauders, simply because, I mean, if you're if you're just coming into this run, you don't know who any of these characters are, uh, and I mean, it doesn't really tell you exactly who's who, but at least it gives you some sort of information, some sort of name that you could you know Google if you wanted to. I thought that was nice as a sort of secondary roll call page, so we knew exactly what the battlefield actually looked like. And, uh, I mean, the info pages I've been, you know, sometimes they've been rotten, sometimes they've been pretty decent, and sometimes they're really good. And this one was a good one, uh, simply because it delivered information, which, you know, go figure is what an info page probably should do. And it, you know, back in the day, I feel like it would have been the Claremontian way to do it would have all of them stand there and introduce themselves, right? It's like, I'm Harpoon, and, you know, I'm Arclight. That seemed to be the old Claremont way of doing it, but it was a different time, so it was a, yeah, there's a little bit of a charm to that. But nowadays, I don't know that we can get away with that sort of thing. And so, hey, we got these info pages, we might as well use them for, uh, for the reason they should be used for, which is to deliver information. <laughs> now, Andrew continues. Now my gripes. I want to talk about the attempts at humor in this book. It says, now you talk a lot about Chris problems, and I'm going to say that this might just be an Andrew problem. The bit with Nanny stuck on the floor. I know it made you laugh, so I can't say it wasn't funny, and I'm sure most people really enjoyed it. But to me, the Andrew problem is that all I could think when I see this is, oh, you just put Nanny in the book to laugh at her. And I find that incredibly disrespectful and a waste of a character. Take that gag out, and what changes about the story? Nothing. I get that Nanny is goofy and kind of silly, but her strength as a character is that she's goofy and silly while killing people and stealing their children. Nanny should be played creepy as hell, not for cheap slapstick. It bugs the hell out of me when an author picks a character and decides they're dumb and just craps all over them for a laugh. And yes, this is 100% an Andrew problem, but it's something that colors my reading, whether I like it to or not. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And uh, like I said during the discussion, I, I kind of hate myself for finding Nanny so funny in this book. <laughs> it's not my kind of comedy, but for whatever reason, it just gets me every time. Like, even the first issue when Sinister reacted to Nanny, seeing Nanny just uh, an egg with lipstick on it and just freaked out. I, I don't know why that caught me so off guard, but it did. And Nanny kind of like writhing around like R2-D2 got me. It got me, but despite the fact that she is a horrifying character, and uh, you're you're 100% right, which, I mean, I can relate to that in so many ways. I'm talking about my, my problem with Jamie Madrox being eaten by zombies here, because the writer decided that it's going to be funny, you know? I, I have problems with that, too, so it's uh, maybe a Chris and Andrew problem. I just, for some reason, I've got a weakness for, uh, for our nanny. <laughs> Is all. <laughs> Andrew continues. That feeling also includes includes Batroc the Leaper, who doesn't deserve to be a joke. There, I said it. And I'm with you. I'm with you there, too. The reason I have such a knee-jerk reaction to Batroc is because, just like what you said here, he's mostly used as a low-effort comedy act. It's like, it's like the worst, like, distilled Wizard Magazine article. It's like, they might as well have Batroc carry a sign over his head that says... Laugh at this character, damn it, with an arrow pointing down or something, because that's all he's used for. I feel like Batrock and maybe Modok can hang out together because Modok is just a creepy head. Isn't he funny? Ha ha ha. No, there's more to it than that. You know, it's. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Andrew continues. My other gripe isn't so much a gripe as a trepidation about where the story's going. 
I really don't want Alex to be portrayed as lovesick over Madeline. I don't want to read him trying to reach the good inside her only for her to redeem to deem herself too broken to be good and him agonizing over killing her to save his team. That's pretty much a stock havoc story and I really hope that's not exactly what happens. And you know, I haven't really given much thought to what might happen. I'm afraid you might be right on the money though cuz I don't see her making it out of this uh of this uh story alive. I don't know what the resurrection protocols might have in store for her since she's I guess she's technically a mutant, but she's also a clone. I don't know if... I don't know if we've had one of those die yet. <laughs> so, maybe they'll bring her back, maybe they won't. Maybe she'll just uh, stay dead. I, I have a feeling, though, that she is probably not going to make it out of this story because I think that this first arc is the statement arc, you know, where they kind of lay down what, what to expect from this volume and this series. So I think it's going to be... Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, That's all I've got to say, so I'll end by saying that I continue to enjoy the show. And don't feel too bad when you're negative on a book because you're far more positive, so it evens out. Until Krakoa and Paradise Island do the island mating ritual, make mine ex-lapsed. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Andrew. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get over myself as it pertains to, uh, being negative on a book because as a fake ass reviewer um there's like this weird line right there's this odd line that you feel like i don't know when you look at reviewers online they seem to be very very polar right they they're either a total sunshine lollipops rainbows 10 out of 10 this is the greatest thing in the world please retweet me please share my post tom king and others uh, or they go the angry reviewer route and everything is, uh, you know, littered with F-bombs and uh, all sorts of curse words uh, for emphasis. And it's hard to find a middle ground. And it's also hard to, as someone who tries to keep the middle ground, when you veer into the polls, it's, uh, I don't know, you kind of feel like you're not being true, even if you are being true. I, I always worry about, you know... Um, Provocateering, I guess I, you should, I could say, uh, where I'm doing, I'm exaggerating just to get attention, and uh, I assure you, I'm not. So <laughs> it troubles me when I have to be as negative as I've been on something like the Empire miniseries, or when I'm as positive on something like 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 these Hellions books, because it feels like I'm baiting. And uh, I don't know. That's definitely that is definitely a Chris problem. So. <laughs> We'll keep it close to vest and uh, see how we can do moving forward. But thanks again for uh, sharing your thoughts there, Andrew. We're going to wrap up with uh, Jesse DeJong regarding Empire. He says, good morning, Chris. And, and to answer your question, coming from someone who read every issue of the Empire series, no, Empire X-Men has zero effect on the rest of the crossover series. And if I recall, at no point does this series or any other crossover titles ever mention the events on Genosha. Bingo. That's pretty much exactly what I thought, unfortunately. And that's unfortunate, right? I mean, they dedicated... Well, they were supposed to dedicate several months to this before the, the COVID lapse, but uh, they, they, I mean, they devoted four issues to it. And uh, a bunch of writers and a bunch of artists. So it's very unfortunate, but it's, it's not unexpected. I think we've all been around the block a bunch of times with the Marvel cash-in tie-in phenomenon. And this is just what we come to expect... And in a couple of months, we'll be here again. So we'll uh, we'll just keep going. <laughs> Jesse continues. 
I hope this doesn't spoil anything for you, but there will be something that takes place in issue 4 that might soften your look at Explodey Boy. Well, at least there's one thing to look forward to. I just hope uh, maybe the resurrection protocols will still be too expensive to, uh, <laughs> to use. Uh, Jesse continues. As for the other question, no, I don't think anyone reading the Empire title would feel the need to pick up the X-Men part of this event, whether it be Empire colon X-Men or just the X-Men title. If anything was a money grab, it would be this series. I honestly wish Marvel would put, a f- put off for a few years any company-wide crossover so that when they do, it would be more impactful. I mean, could you even imagine ever going back to a time like that where... Hey guys, no crossovers for two years. Could you imagine how great that would be? Just letting writers write and tell the stories they want to tell without having to worry about being derailed every month and a half after another rolling crossover event. I remember DC made an announcement like that a few years ago. It was probably more than a few years ago, but time is flying. And uh, everything since I turned 21 is just like a little while ago. Uh, I remember they made this announcement that they'd be, you know, paying more attention to their individual series instead of partaking in constant crossover mode, right? And they actually, they actually stuck to their word for like a minute or two. And uh, since you know, comic fans on the internet are very hypocritical, I remember fans mocking them for it. It seemed like like Marvel and DC can make the same announcement on the same day, and DC would be mocked for it, and Marvel would be lauded for it. Just seems to be the way things go, and I mean, I'm, I've got no use for either company at this point. But I, I notice that Marvel gets the free pass more often than not. Now, DC is just like Marvel: multiple events running at the same time, just leading to another slew of events that will all run at the same time. Uh, I don't, I don't think we're ever going back. It's really, really sad, uh, but. I'm sure before King and Black is over with, we're already going to know the next two Marvel crossover events. And one of them will probably have already been started. It's ridiculous. I mean, in not too long, we've actually got a uh, an X-Men issue that has the branding of both X of Swords and Empire on it. I mean, how ridiculous is that? <laughs> it's, we, are, we are tying into two, two crossover events. Ugh. Jesse continues, I remember how excited I was for Civil War after years of company-wide crossovers not being a thing. Civil War may not have been a fantastic series, but I still remember it fondly. They still talk about it today, and there was even a movie made based on its premise. And you know, as much as I hated and continue to hate Civil War for making it so every single Marvel and now DC event needs to have a hero versus hero element... And also eschewing established characterization to make whichever character the writer wants to include fit into their contrived story. I'll admit that it was a novelty. I mean, it wasn't the first after the uh, after the hiatus of crossovers. The first one was House of M. And I feel like that was a primer for Marvel going back into crossover mode. Like, sort of a, a pilot. It's like, well, let's see, how, let's see if this works. And then a year later, I mean, Civil War hit us like a ton of bricks. Uh, what kind of bricks? Well, I'll leave that to all of you. I know what kind of bricks they were to me. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, There's just not a need to do multiple crossovers in one year, except for the almighty dollar that I will still give them, so I guess I'm part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will fully cop to being part of the problem as well. Um, I've been part of the problem for most of my life. 
which is pathetic, but it's true. Um, as much as I, uh, I I have problems with you know the exploitation and the multiple crossovers and the you know gotta get them all, gotta read them all sort of a mindset. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I mean we're we're doing these empire books. I didn't need to do these empire books, but we're doing them, <laughs> and uh, we're paying the price. Definitely, definitely part of the problem. Uh, we talked a lot about the four types of fans, right? And I know that I am definitely in group one, which is the person who buys everything. You know, the person who will buy comics if they are comics because they buy comics. So they know that, and they use that, and they exploit that. But I don't see it changing anytime soon, unfortunately. But uh, thank you so much for answering those questions uh, on Empire and, of course, for listening and sharing your thoughts. Uh, now, if anyone out there would like to share their thoughts with me, I'm a pretty easy guy to get a hold of. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We also have xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, which utilizes the blogger flip card format, which makes it look really, really neat for uh, obsessive types like myself. Uh, you can come chat with us about X-Men, anything you want, at uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can hear the entire audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. guess that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Only one more... Well, one more mini-series issue of Empire to go. We still got a couple after that in the X-Men book, but we'll worry about those another time. I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out today and sharing your time with me. And as always, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.